Back up, please. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank series of Indicast. I'm Abhishek and uh, today we have with us the person who is responsible for all the beautiful and uh, reader-friendly articles, stories and special reports under the finance and economic section of The Economist. Joining me from Washington is The Economist's economics editor, Zani Minton Bedoez. Zani, it's great to have you here. It's my pleasure, Abhishek. Uh, Zani, I read in the uh, Economist's uh, media directory, which uh, briefs all the authors there, that uh, you've spent two years as an economist in the IMF. Uh, you've worked as an advisor to the Ministry of Finance in Poland. Uh, you are among the few who testified before the Congress on the introduction of the euro. Uh, now, with, with such an intimidating resume, uh, what brought you to the Economist, or when did the journalism uh, bug bit you? <laughs> Well, I um, have always liked writing, and I realized, I think probably when I was at the IMF, that I was interested in writing about economics more than I was interested in crunching numbers and building models, and certainly probably better at it. Um, <laughs> and so I uh, then decided that what I really liked doing was trying to understand economic policy and trying to explain economic policy. Um, and so I thought uh, there was no better place to do it than The Economist. Mm-hmm. Currently, you must be neck deep in work then with the U.S. economy making breaking news almost every day or maybe every minute. <laughs> Certainly a pretty interesting time right now. I mean, as an Indian who's uh, sitting miles away from the U.S., I probably might not understand what exactly is wrong with the U.S. economy. But uh, I do understand, like many in the subcontinent, that the U.S. economy is sick. So you are the closest to the action in Washington. What is the plight of the working man or a single mother out there who works well, I think the way to understand what's going on in the U.S. right now is that it's really suffering a hangover, a fairly hefty hangover, mm-hmm. from an enormous house price bubble that started really in the late 1990s but really took fuel um, in the early years of this century when the Federal Reserve, the central bank, cut interest rates very dramatically, as you remember, in the wake of the stock market bust right. and kept interest rates very low. And that period of very low interest rates fueled an extraordinary acceleration in house prices and fueled a lot of very extreme lending. And that, coupled with a lack of real regulation, caused what is now known as the subprime mess. And I'm sure you've heard of this subprime mortgage sector. And subprime mortgages are basically mortgages that are given to people whose credit rating is not good enough for them to get an ordinary mortgage. So they tend to be poorer people, people who have a spotty credit history, And traditionally, these kind of people couldn't actually get mortgages. Mm -hmm. But in the last decade or so, changes in financial markets, basically innovation in financial markets, allowed these people to get access to mortgages, which were then sold on in the capital markets. And the combination of this innovation, Mm -hmm. together with a period of very low interest rates, fueled a huge rise in mortgage lending and also fueled an enormous appreciation in American house prices. And so a lot of Americans essentially... What their wages were reasonably and have been relatively stagnant for the past few years, but they continue to spend and they fuel their consumption in large part by tapping into the wealth that was being accumulated in their homes. As their houses got more and more valuable, they had equity in their homes, right. and they were able to get this money out um, by taking out often a second mortgage on their house. And so the American consumer managed to carry on spending, and as you you probably know, the American shopper has been you know, a stalwart of the world economy for a very long time. Right. And the, really the big picture of what's happening now is that the American consumer is being hit by four simultaneous shocks. 
The mm-hmm. first one is the housing bust and the fall in house prices. Mm-hmm. And that is putting pressure on a lot of people and causing a lot of people to be unable to pay their mortgages. So that's one big hit. Uh-huh. The second hit is this increase in defaults on mortgages was the initial catalyst for the big financial turmoil that we've seen in, in many rich countries over the past eight months. There was profound uncertainty in financial markets where nobody was sure who held the losses. And mm-hmm. So everybody was unwilling to lend to everybody else. And because of these losses, banks in particular are having to, to scale back. And so they're becoming more reluctant to lend to people. So it's becoming harder for the ordinary American to get access to credit, even at the same time as their house price is losing value. Right. Then there are two additional hits. The first is the big increase in oil and food prices that you know very well in India too. Yes. And oil, in particular gasoline, is an in- important part of the consumption basket of consumer spending here in the U.S. And oil prices have been soaring. And so that's a real hit on consumers. And fourthly, and mm-hmm. finally, the sort of last shoe to drop, if you will, <laughs> is that we are seeing signs that the labor market is weakening that in response to all of these different shocks, firms are worrying about consumers' ability to carry on spending, so they are themselves scaling back their production. Right. The unemployment rate has risen to 5.1%. That's still pretty low in a historical context, but it's been rising. In each of the past four months, overall, there were job losses in the private sector, which is traditionally a kind of uh, canary in the coal mine, if you like, which suggests that the economy is falling into recession. And obviously, if people find it harder to get work and more people are unemployed, then they won't make as much money. They will be hit by these other shocks. They may be unable to make the mortgage payments on their house. And so you can see that the spiral, the downward spiral can start. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those are the four what I call the kind of quadruple whammy that is hitting the U.S. consumer. As a result, consumer spending has slowed very dramatically. It Mm -hmm. may even fall. And that, because the consumer spending makes up 70% of the U.S. economy, Mm -hmm. that drags the economy down. But do you think that uh, the U.S. consumer should be blamed for some of it because uh, he lived beyond his means? I mean, he took extraordinary amounts of debt in the times of the millennium, 2000, etc., and it totals up to around... Three trillion. He lived off his credit card. So while I understand that quite a lot has been stressed on the oil uh, price increasing, etc., how much of it do you think is the U.S. consumer to blame? Well, I think it's certainly true that the U.S. consumer was able to maintain spending by building up a huge amount of debt. You're absolutely right. And U.S. savings has been on a sort of secular decline. U.S. household savings for the right. past two decades. Uh, And I I tend really not to think about it in terms of blame. What I'm thinking about is what's caused this, and you're quite right that a lot of demand, a lot of spending in the U.S. was fueled by this increase in indebtedness. And now that I think we are at a turning point in that, Mm -hmm. American consumers are going to have to rebuild their savings. That's why American spending is going to be weak, not just for the next month, not just Mm -hmm. for the next six months, but I think for quite a protracted period. So is that the reason why the Fed has slashed the interest rates and is saying that to the American consumer that please, please spend a little bit more and that you're overreacting and put some money back into the economy because you're saving too much. Yes, yes. that's the traditional tool that policymakers use when the economy slows down or is threatened with recession. The two policy responses that we've had, one, the cutting of interest rates, and the other, I'm sure you've heard about that on the fiscal side, there's been a fiscal stimulus bill where the Congress has basically 
authorized tax rebates for many Americans, again, with the exhortation to go and spend them, which might sound to you like a kind of crazy remedy, right? If you've Mm -hmm. got into this mess because you've been spending too much, how can you possibly get out of it by spending more? And there's some logic to that. but, But the worry now is that if there is a too brutal shift from too much spending to too little spending, that that will push the economy into a very nasty recession. And so, you know, we learned from Keynesian economics that if you pump the prime, if you, if you cut interest rates or if you do some fiscal stimulus, you can essentially, you can try and cushion the economy. Mm-hmm. But some economists are saying that uh, the man in charge of everything, he's acting in a fit of uh, desperation, if I may use the word. And one of the editors of the Business Week has gone on record and said that he's throwing the kitchen sink to everything and he's acting like a king and less like an economist. Uh, so while some of it might be true, most of it might be wrong, but what is your take on all of this? Well, I think there are two different things that the central bank has been trying to do, and mm-hmm. I think it's important to separate them. One is the question of what are they doing with interest rates and how much are they trying to cushion the economy from recession. The second, and I think this is where much of the focus in recent weeks has been, has been an attempt to stop the financial system from becoming completely dysfunctional oh. and to keep the financial system working normally. And much of the panic over the past few months has been because the, the mechanisms at the heart of the financial system, whether it's the interbank market through which banks lend to each other, simply stopped working as one expected them to. Mm-hmm. And so much of what the Fed has been doing in past few months with all these new uh, liquidity facilities that you've probably heard about, or particularly the weekend when they were involved with the uh, with Bear Stearns, and the, um, it wasn't really a bailout over the rescue of Bear Stearns, was an attempt to ward off an absolutely calamitous financial meltdown. Right. They lent to J.P. Morgan up to $30 billion, I believe. Yes. They agreed to take on that much of Bear Stearns' assets. The point of that mm-hmm. was to try and prevent a financial market implosion and to try and uh, ensure that financial markets continued to function normally. It seems to me that that was an extremely important thing for them to do. Now, there are lots of long-term questions it raises, you know, of moral hazard, what kind of new regulation you need. But just in terms of crisis management, I think we would be in a much worse place if that hadn't happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zani, I very vividly remember reading the issue of World in 2008, which normally is published at the fag end of 2007, where in, in one of the articles you had mentioned that Crudely put, the fate of the American economy in 2008 will be determined by three F words. And those three F F words are foreclosures, foreigners, and Fed. So today, it more seems like the three F words are Fed, Fed, and the Fed. I'm not so sure about that. I think that it, it, uh, so far, you know, we're only in, um, what, the fourth month of 2008. So let's have this conversation again at the end of 2008. (laughs) I I think you're right that the Fed has been at the center of the action in the past couple of months. And foreclosures in that piece were a, uh, a shorthand for me for the extent of the pain in the housing market. The word foreclosure is the process of when a person who has a mortgage mm-hmm. uh, defaults on that mortgage, doesn't pay the interest and principal that is due. A process starts where initially, if, he, if he's just a month late, is what's called delinquent on the loan. Right. After 90 days, he goes into technically into the process called foreclosure or the process called default. And that's a beginning of a process which ends with, eventually, the bank or the mortgage holder taking repossession of the house. So foreclosure is basically the process of defaulting on mortgage and then the 
the bank or lender taking that property back again. Right. And uh, not every mortgage that goes into foreclosure mm-hmm. ends up with a homeowner losing, losing the house. The loan, the mortgage might be reworked out. They might start paying again. But the, the logic end of the process is that the lender takes back the asset, which is the house, mm-hmm. and then puts it on the market and sells it again. So if you have, you know, some people talk about more than 2 million or so people defaulting on their mortgages and going into foreclosure. If all of those people went through to the end of the process, they have an extra 2 million houses on the market. Oh. And so the supply of houses for sale would increase, which would further push down prices. Because when banks or mortgage lenders own houses, they want to sell them as quickly as possible. Right. Over the rest of the year, the extent to which the economy worsens and the, mm-hmm. how deep the recession is and how long it lasts mm-hmm. will, I think, be also affected by the other two Fs. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, it's great to see that someone's batting for the Fed and not badgering them, like many of the writers are. Well, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not suggesting that every decision they've made is perfect, and I certainly uh-huh. think that the Federal Reserve in um, earlier this decade mm-hmm. has played a fairly substantial role in causing this mess right, right. by keeping interest rates too low for too long. Right. You know, one I'm, of... Uh, I'm, sorry, please go on. Uh, go, go ahead. Uh, I mean, since you're talking about the Fed, I remember reading this, uh, this quote from one of the former Fed governor. He said that my job is like taking the punch bowl away just when the party is getting good. So it's like I have a very thankless job as such. Do you think that's, that's right? That's what it is? I think that is in part what it is. And I think part of the problem was that Alan Greenspan did not take the punch bowl away quickly enough. Bernanke Fed was left in many ways to pick up the pieces. Mm-hmm. And that many of the problems that we're in now were worsened by the fact that monetary policy was quite loose for a long time between 2002 and 2004. And I don't think we would have avoided the whole housing bubble and housing bust, but I think it may not have been as big as it became. That said, there is now a danger, of course, that or when you're clearing up the pieces or to continue the, the hangover metaphor when you're dealing with the hungover economy, right. in the short term, the Fed wants to reduce interest rates um, mm-hmm. to help cushion the economy, and, and it has reduced them dramatically. But then there is, of course, the risk. One, there is a, a worry about inflation, which is it's uncomfortably high, thanks in large part to commodity prices. But there's also the risk that if you keep interest rates too low for too long, you, you know, essentially get into the same rhythm again. Um, So it's like a trade-off. You reduce the interest rates. So it's like you have uh, taking antibiotics if you are sick, but then the trade-off is that you become too sluggish and drowsy. So if you carry this interest rate slashing for a long time, then it won't help the economy. Uh, We can take that metaphor a little bit further, because in some sense, the cutting of short-term interest rates by the Fed is not actually translating into easier lending conditions for regular people who are borrowing, in part because of the whole financial problems that we've been talking about. And so there are many people who now argue that monetary policy is somehow less effective this time around. In fact, it was Larry Summers, the former U.S. Treasury Secretary and the Clinton administration, who said that it was like treating a virus with antibiotics. We were using the wrong kind of approach, the wrong kind of medicine. Aha, okay. Well, then I'm going to ask you one cliched question that normally the economists dislike, uh, is that with all of this, we know that the dollar is depreciating. And how much further do you think it will slide? <laughs> I have no idea. If I knew that question, I would be in a different job and much richer. <laughs> but with the way things are uh, happening. You know, it's, it's a very, it's a fool's game to try and predict short-term currency movements. If you look at the size of the U.S. current account deficit, the U.S. external deficit, Mm -hmm. it's still a pretty good big current account deficit, which suggests that overall the dollar probably has further to fall. 
Um, That said, if you look at the way the dollar has fallen, it's fallen quite dramatically against some big currencies, particularly the euro. It's fallen much less dramatically against many Asian currencies, obviously particularly against China. Um, And then there are many, uh, notably the, the Gulf states currencies, that peg their currencies to the dollar. So there hasn't been any adjustment there at all. Right. My suspicion is that we will see a depreciation over the next couple of years focused on the currencies that haven't yet appreciated as much against the dollar. Ah, okay. But then if I'm a very shrewd investor, then what I can do today is I can borrow cheaply from the U.S. because the interest rates are very low and then invest that amount of money in an emerging economy or some country where the interest rates are high. So do you think the dollar will further depreciate because when I keep doing this, the value of my investment in the U.S. starts decreasing over time. Well, that's a little bit, um, you're, what you're describing is pretty much like the carry trade, right? But yes, they, they taught me this in college, yes. So the U.S. to be the new, the new source currency for the carry trade. Yes. Certainly it is possible, and what I think is very clear already, mm-hmm. is that the loose monetary policy and, as a result, the weak dollar are causing problems for many emerging economies because their currencies are appreciating, but also because capital is looking for higher returns and so is coming in greater quantities and likely to come in even greater quantities into emerging economies, which can you know, cause extra problems for them as they try and manage their macroeconomic policies, keep inflation down. So I think it's a mixed blessing for many emerging economies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it leads to another question that I had. I saw this Jay Leno show sometime back and there was a line that he said which got me to asking this question to you. He said that the stock market was down today. Uh, two major companies declared bankruptcy. Consumer spending is at an all-time low. In other words, Bush is back on his job. So my question to you is it, it only says that the relationship between politics and economics is something which is inseparable. So how much does politics intrude in economics? and uh, affect the decision of the Fed as such while they're taking their calls? Uh, I, you know, I, I don't think that when the central bankers sit down and make their interest rate decisions, they are thinking about the election in November. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, they are focused on the economy. They're focused on trying to do the right thing for the economy. But that said, I don't think the central bankers can completely pay no attention to the broader political environment in which they operate. So, you know, what senators are thinking, what's mm-hmm. going on in Congress is something that they have to be very conscious of. And, and many American central bankers are constantly going to Capitol Hill and testifying to congressmen and to senators. So they are part of the broader political environment, but politics writ narrowly, I don't think, does play very highly in their decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, one last question, Zani, is that if we pause and rewind a couple of years ago and uh, go back to the special report that you did in 2005 on the world economy, you had mentioned a couple of very uh, fascinating things. One is that Ben Bernanke had said... Uh, He was then the successor of Alan Greenspan, I believe, and he said that the world is suffering from a global savings glut. So in other words, savings is exceeding investments. But in my college days, they taught us that savings is nothing but postponement of current consumption. So in other words, if I postpone my current consumption, I would put that money and invest it somewhere. So at the end of the day, savings should be equal to investments. But what Ben Bernanke was saying that savings is exceeding investments. Uh, So how how does this happen? Actual savings has to equal actual investment. And so if you have, for example, imagine you have a a world where there are lots and lots of investment opportunities and not very much saving, then the people will bid up the price of the saving, right? Right. So the long-term interest rates will rise. Long-term interest rates in the past few years have been falling, Mm -hmm. which suggested that 
there was a glut of saving relative to the uh, investment opportunities. That's what he meant by that. And it was a sense that, particularly because of policy decisions by China and the large oil exporters, there were big surpluses being built up in big emerging economies and looking for a home, looking for a home to invest in. And they were being invested largely in the, in the United States, which was running a large deficit. And the U.S. could run its large deficit extremely cheaply because there was this, quote, glut of savings in the rest of the world looking for a home. Right. Because Norman would have expected that if the United States was simply being profligate and that if U.S. consumers were simply going on a spending binge mm-hmm. and nothing else changed in the rest of the world, then inter- the price at which they'd have to pay, long-term interest rates, would go up. Right. But because that didn't happen, it was because there was a glut of saving looking for a home. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned back then that the world economy is doing okay, but it's running on one engine. So do you think that engine is, is running out of steam now, at least for the moment? The U.S.? I think the world economy is running much less on one engine, and I think one of the big shifts of the past couple of years has been the shift in terms of engines to emerging economies, mm-hmm. and that it's much less reliant on the U.S. If you look at the last year or so, the U.S. has actually been growing pretty sluggishly, but the world economy has been doing very well, and it's been doing very well because it's being powered increasingly by big emerging economies that have picked up the slack. And one of the very big questions now is if the U.S falls into recession and stays weak, mm-hmm. can the rest of the world, particularly the emerging economies, boost their own spending and essentially drive the world economy so that the overall world economy is much less dependent on the U.S. than it used to be? Uh, and you see that happening over time? Over, over... I, I see it happening thus far. Mm-hmm. Um, this gets into a debate that's often called the decoupling debate, right. which is the question of can the rest of the world decouple from the U.S.? That's often put in very simplistic terms, that either a U.S. recession has no effect on the rest of the world or it has a big effect, and I think that both of those extremes are wrong. Obviously, mm-hmm. a U.S. recession has an effect on the rest of the world and will slow economic growth in the rest of the world, but I think it has a much less big impact now than it used to, and the, re- the main reason for that is the resilience and strength of big emerging economies. Mm-hmm. And that we've seen that so far, and one of the big question marks looking forward is how resilient they will remain if the U.S. is in recession and stays weak. Yes, and the recession is a word which Ben Bernanke is still not using in any of his speeches, and neither have I come across that word in any of your articles, that U.S. economy is undergoing recession yet. Oh, I have. In just two weeks ago, I uh-huh. started an article with a sentence that said, it may not be official, but it is increasingly obvious America's economy has slipped into recession. All right. I'm pretty convinced that it's, uh, if not, it depends what you mean. Recession is a very technical term. Right? Right. There, is a, there is the National Bureau of Economic Research has a recession or business cycle dating committee that determines whether the U.S. economy is officially in recession or not. Mm-hmm. Then there's the kind of colloquial definition of recession, which is two consecutive quarters of shrinking GDP. Right. We, therefore, by definition, we won't know whether the U.S. economy has been in recession until after, afterwards because we won't have the statistics. It's pretty clear from the numbers we already have for the fourth quarter that the economy grew only very weakly. The first quarter, we don't have any numbers yet. It may have grown very weakly again. It may, it's basically just slightly above zero. It probably didn't shrink. Um, may have done, but it probably didn't. Well, many people think that the economy may shrink in the second quarter between April and, and July. Mm-hmm. Will all of that add up to a technical recession? But at some point, that becomes a kind of semantical question. Right? Right. <laughs> the, the important thing is that it's slowed very dramatically, that unemployment is rising, consumer spending is 
flat. Consumers are extremely gloomy. There are these four powerful headwinds that I talked about in terms right. of falling house prices, oil, tighter credit conditions, and a weaker labor market. And, and all of that makes for a, a sick economy, as you said at the beginning of this right. conversation. But only if it is a spread across a few years or so, I think they'll have that much more time to recover. Well, my perspective on this has been that it's, regardless of whether or not it's a technical recession, the recovery will be slow. Mm-hmm. That as exactly as you say, there is going to be quite a prolonged period measured, I think, in years, not in months, of relatively weaker consumer spending as the American consumer starts building up his savings again, of a U.S. economy that is more reliant on exports and less reliant on domestic spending, and of a kind of basically quite fragile U.S. economy that has to make these very big adjustments from investing a lot in real estate into investing into the export sector. And the consumers have to undergo the quite painful adjustments of bringing their spending in line with their income and rebuilding their savings. Yes. and Well, let's just hope it happens in as less harmless fashion as possible. But thanks a lot, Zani, for your time. This was great. And uh, I just want to take two more minutes of your time. I, I did this little thing with Daniel Franklin, the executive editor of The Economist, and I, I request you to be as spontaneous as possible for the f- next few questions that I have for you. And they're all lighthearted and there is no right or wrong answer. So are you game for this? Sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, how would you describe in one word the Economist's editorial view of the world? Liberal and independent. What is your message to a few who opine that The Economist is pitched at an American audience because of its high circulation there? I don't think that's true. I, I think we try to pitch at anybody anywhere in the globe who mm-hmm. is interested in an intelligent discussion of important global issues. Right. As The Economist's economics editor, name one journalistic liberty that one of your correspondents takes that you would be willing to pardon. That I would be willing to what, sorry? Pardon. Um, uh, Let me think about it. Go on to the next one. All right. Uh, If Economist were a cartoon character, what would it be? (laughs) 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 Uh, um, Somebody always asks questions. Um, (laughs) Unfashionable person who always asks questions, but I can't think of a cartoon character who fits that. Who did Daniel say was the cartoon character? Asterix, because he's bold and plucky is what he thinks. That's a very good one. Andrea said it's Tintin because he's too naughty and gets into a lot of trouble. (laughs) 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 Asterix and Tintin. Yeah, it's both Asterix and Tintin. Both of those would be good. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, one of the biggest compliments that you have ever received in your, in your stint at The Economist, if you can think of any. What are the biggest compliments? Yes. Um, do you have to say that they find something that we have written not only useful, but also entertaining? Oh, that's great. And Okay, can we go back to the same question? One journalistic liberty, if you, if you can think of any. And the other question is, one such liberty that you would never pardon? Uh, I, I would not only but encourage um, writing about economics in a way that took out every single bit of jargon and became reader-friendly, even if it meant that there were some simplifications. I think that writing about economics in in an accessible way is extremely important. Right. By the same token, I would never pardon somebody hiding behind a whole load of economic jargon. Yes. I'll vouch for that myself because as a reader, I read about the subprime crisis and this one acronym that explained everything. And that acronym, acronym was NINJA. It meant no income, no jobs and assets. So all those people who had no income and no jobs and assets were given the money when they should not have got the loan in the first place. And today we know about the subprime crisis of how everyone defaulted. So yes, <laughs> brilliant that. 
Exactly. Yes, lots of ninja loans. Um, you know, no hiding behind CDO squared, CLOs. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you very much, Zani, for your time. It was indeed a pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure. I'm sorry it took so long to organize. Oh, not at all, not at all. Thank you so much. Have a nice day. All right. Bye. Take care. Thank you. Bye.